Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. So if they own multiple broadcast licenses, they may get multiple votes. So these, to me, are some of the actual provisions in the bill that really tip toward the largest, most dominant, and most legacy business model news organizations. The Journalism Competition and Preservation Act is currently making its way through Congress. Some claim that it will help make competition for ad revenue online more equitable for publishers, while others say it will make things worse. I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. Congress is considering passing the Journalism Competition and Preservation Act, which its supporters say would allow digital and print publishers and news organizations to enter into contract negotiations as a unit in order to get better price structures for news publishers from Internet agents. Recently, 20 public interest consumer advocacy and civil society groups, as well as media companies and legal experts, sent a letter to leaders in the U.S. Senate opposing the act. Lisa McPherson is a senior policy analyst at Public Knowledge, which coordinated the effort behind the letter, and she's here to talk about it. Lisa, welcome to It's All Journalism. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. Now, I mentioned this before we turned on our, our mics, but we did discuss this uh, law, or this uh, bill, I guess, Journalism Competition and Preservation Act, about two years ago with somebody from the News Media Alliance, which was supporting the act. But before we get into too far in the conversations, can you tell me a little bit about public knowledge? You know, what's its mission and, and what does it usually focus on? Public knowledge is a nonprofit. We promote freedom of expression, an open internet, and access to affordable communications tools and creative works. We have about 20 years of experience advocating on behalf of the public interest in areas like media policy, telecommunications law, copyright, and digital platform accountability. And it's that experience and perspective that has really shaped our views on the JCPA. This is something that, as a journalist, I should realize that quite often bills are named you know, something positive, but that may actually hide other things. The Journalism Competition and Preservation Act, it seems like something that would help the news industry. You know, what is it that public knowledge and the co-signers to your letter you know, object to about the act? Well, first, I want to point out what we don't object to, and that is a role for public policy in ensuring that citizens have the access to information they need to engage in the political process. Due to really decades-long changes, though, in how news is distributed and how it's consumed, we're now facing a genuine crisis in local news, and it is worth preserving, one of the words in the JCPA. That crisis isn't just theoretical. There's study after study that show that citizens without access to local news feel less of a sense of community. They vote less, they're less informed, they're less likely to run for office, they experience higher corruption and costs. And that's the reason that so many other democratic governments provide support of some kind to journalism and why public knowledge has advocated for some policy solutions to solve the crisis in local news. But to us, the JCPA is the wrong solution. As you pointed out, it would allow news publishers and broadcasters to band together in what are called joint negotiating entities. 
to negotiate for payment from the dominant digital platforms for accessing their content. That pertains to Google and Facebook, as well as some other news aggregators. We object to it because first, the bill allows publishers to restrict Google and Facebook as part of the negotiating process from linking to their news stories, which means ultimately the public's access to critical information online could be threatened. The introduction of payment for simply linking to content on the internet kind of threatens one of public knowledge's principles about open and equitable access to information. It wouldn't be a big leap to extend that demand for payment to smaller platforms than other kinds of organizations than internet users. And that could happen in either new or expanded legislation, or it could happen in how the JCPA is interpreted by courts. We also believe that the largest news organizations, many of which are members of the News Media Alliance, will get a disproportionate share of the money. And there are no provisions in the bill requiring that they actually spend it on journalism. And then lastly, there are some provisions in the bill that actually discourage or even prevent platforms from using content moderation to support their community standards or their terms of service. That means that users might see more harmful disinformation and extreme content and hate speech. So I know, Michael, that's a lot, but really simply put, we just think this bill will actually compound some of the biggest problems in our information landscape, like consolidation and declining quality of information that's available to citizens. It seems like it would go against some of the things that I think people have pointed to as being problematic, such as, you know, with the way information is being shared right now, where you have you know, like large cable companies controlling a lot of the the flow of information. And, you know, as you said, this sort of creates these, creates a system where it seems a handful of large, you know, media companies would probably benefit the most from it. Is that kind of what seems to be pushing it, that the people who are behind the, the bill? Yeah, there's no question that who would benefit most from the JCPA are the largest legacy publishers and broadcasters. That's why the two largest media lobbying organizations, the News Media Alliance and the National Association of Broadcasters, are by far the two biggest advocates for the bill. It's also, though, publishers and broadcasters who have a legacy business model primarily based on advertising revenue. That's important because many experts think that the brightest future for local news lies in new business models, like nonprofit business structures or organizations that are owned by the community or philanthropy. Those models, in addition to having the potential to be more strongly rooted in the community, they also don't discourage the kind of inflammatory news and clickbait that an advertising business model you know, tends to attract because those, those clicks are attention and attention is inventory if you have an advertising-based business model. So some of these new business model types are eligible for the JCPA, but the whole premise of the JCPA is to get a share of advertising revenues from the platforms. 
We are also concerned because the bill for all of its, you know, stated focus on saving local newspapers actually provides huge advantages to the largest broadcasters. So for example, if they have an online presence, a media conglomerate can actually double dip in the JCPA by participating as both an eligible broadcaster and an eligible online publisher. They can also vote in their joint negotiating entity as both an eligible broadcaster and an eligible publisher. And whereas publishers, your newspaper and online publishers can engage in the negotiation only as one entity, no matter how many individual publications they own, the eligible broadcaster definition doesn't have that limitation. So if they own multiple broadcast licenses, they may get multiple votes. So these to me are some of the actual provisions in the bill that really tip toward the largest, most dominant and most legacy business model news organizations. Yeah. You know, as somebody who's been working in the digital environment for over a decade, you know, I've experienced that frustration that early on there was this rush to get all of your content on Facebook because everybody was on Facebook and that's where you wanted people to go and to read your content. And then suddenly you realized that, you know, that Facebook being a, a business figured out a way to, you know, make that a revenue stream for themselves. And, and suddenly we were just sort of content creators who were not be able to reap any benefit from it. So, you know, I can understand the thinking behind it, the idea that, you know, well, they must pay something. I mean, is that something that can be done under any model or, you know, is that something that would be sort of threatening to the, you know, the free flow of information on an open web? I too spent a lot of time in the digital advertising ecosystem before working in policy. I was actually a consumer marketer and my specialty was digital marketing transformation, helping companies data and digital I haven't heard that in a couple of years, that phrase. So I understand how as consumers went to digital platforms for everything, including news consumption, that it made the platforms sort of very, very powerful. Some of them have initiated different business models to bring more money to journalism, like the Facebook news program, the Google News Showcase, etc. Those are ways that they are through a licensing business model, compensating content creators. But during that same time period, news organizations also had the opportunity to reinvent their business model, to understand their consumers and find alternative ways of meeting their needs. So there were kind of two players in that story. And while Facebook and others found ways to follow how consumers were changing the news consumption patterns. In many cases, the large legacy news organizations didn't. And that's why this kind of market intervention is something that they're looking for now, that, that they could have innovated. So it's also why new, new business models have jumped up to try to meet consumers' needs. Yeah, you know, something that I have experienced and I have seen in sort of the space as a podcast producer, and, we, you know, we don't have a regular revenue stream. So it's not quite as concerning for us. But as long as we've been doing this podcast for over 10 years, there always seem to be these newsrooms that you use the word legacy, these legacy newsrooms that just couldn't give up the advertising money that would not innovate, they would not figure out a way to sustain themselves online. 
And, you know, journalists lost their jobs, you know, newspapers or, or broadcasters, you know, the, the original content shrunk and shrunk and shrunk until suddenly they had a product that they couldn't sell. And then they've, you know, they were trying to recreate, you know, the daily newspaper. And for all intents and purposes is that model doesn't work anymore. And so here we are almost 20 years into the digital revolution. We don't have a 100 percent you know, solution to how to fund local news ongoing. That doesn't mean that there aren't successful ones, and there are, and we've talked to people like that on the, on this podcast. But here's the thing, though. Maybe some of them had and still have a little more control than we think. So clearly some news organizations should have been more innovative and used insight about their readers or viewers to sort of evolve their business model. But even today... Online publishers can prevent Google or Facebook from linking to their own news content. They can use non-index and non-follow tags on their sites to prevent Google from indexing their pages in search or from following links on that page. And they can put up paywalls to keep their news content from being accessed without payment. But they don't because the traffic that the platforms create for them which can be converted to revenue by converting them to subscriptions or through advertising to that traffic is simply too valuable. So while yes, news is in crisis and the digital transformation is a big part of that, there are ways that they can engage in the ecosystem in a way that gives them more control. I mean, thinking around this has sort of evolved over the last few years, this idea that you know, a lot of these people, they just don't want to give up that revenue. Either they can't sell to whomever, their bosses or their stockholders or whatever. We're going to have a, a short term, and maybe it's not quite as short term as, as they would hope, but a period with which we're going to be negative revenue because we're trying to, you know, make that conversion. And yet they're, they fail to do that. And it, by failing to do that, you know, everything comes down. Now, you mentioned the Newspaper Preservation Act of 1970 in the letter. You know, how is that, you know, applicable? How can we use that as sort of a, an example of how something like this doesn't work? Yeah, great question. We use the Newspaper Preservation Act as a point of reference for two reasons. First, it shows how far back the challenges facing newspapers really go. This was a piece of legislation that was passed by Congress back in 1970 when newspapers were facing a different existential threat, and that is one from TV and radio. The bill provided a special antitrust exemption, where have I heard that before, for geographically co-located newspapers to create what were called joint operating entities. So they could set their advertising and subscription rates across these joint uh, operating entities. It's similar in the, it, to the JCPA in that essentially it provides an antitrust exemption to create a pricing cartel, which is basically what the JCPA does. The second reason though that we reference this act is that it proves our point. It did very little to solve the underlying trends that were already reducing the number of newsrooms across the country. It too had the effect of kind of further insulating these big and uh, very influential industries from new competition and the need to innovate their business. And yet 
the weaker player in the agreements was usually the first to die because the terms that were set by these joint entities favored the largest and most powerful news organizations within the entity. Really, that particular act is kind of a proof point that really in any industry, antitrust exemptions rarely achieve the beneficial goals that they set out to create. Now, I think you may have touched on this when you were talking about the ability of like newsrooms to sort of turn off the links to their content. But, you know, if the JCPA were were enacted, what effect would it have on the open nature of the Internet? As I said, the bill introduces payment for simply linking or what the bill's advocates call accessing content on the Internet. And that is a precedent that could be extended to smaller internet organizations, then to other types of organizations, then to internet users, and so on and so on. Again, that doesn't have to take the form of more law. It's how courts may interpret the JCPA. And to your point earlier, what we're talking about is not taking that content or making it unusable for other citizens or other organizations. It's for links or in some cases for so-called snippets or little you know, extractions of a news article or a thumbnail illustration from a news story. And payment for those types of things would upend decades of copyright law. Straightforward links are considered sort of outside copyright law and the use of snippets has you know, multiple times been considered fair use of the content. Now, to be honest and fair, lobbyists for the JCPA say, well, there's an Australian law that that we're kind of modeling the JCPA on, and that didn't break the internet. Yeah, but it's important to point out that that Australian law, known as the Australian Bargaining Code, doesn't even apply to Google or Facebook. To avoid being designated under the Australian law, Google and Facebook cut private, confidential commercial licensing deals with Australia's biggest publishers. It's a fundamentally different kind of agreement, and the Australian law doesn't impact their core businesses at all, which makes it a very different proposition from the JCPA. What's interesting is that the idea of links and snippets When you think of so many of the digital, you know, the small digital companies that are sort of providing that content, a lot of it is built around aggregation and, you know, information from other stories that they link to that under fair use, they've been able to do to sort of expand a story or share information with their readers. And that's part of their, you know, the structure of way they they maintain their audience. You know, you come to us, we may not have covered this, but we have our eye on it and we're going to point you to the places where you need to get, find out this information. So if you, if you take away something like that, as simple as that, that you have to pay for that, I mean, that whole service, which is part of, you know, actually, you know, sustain some of these, these smaller publishers, but also helps to enrich you know, the content that's being shared across the web, it's a way that I think that people aren't going to at first realize, you know, how that's going to negatively impact the free flow of information. 
I agree. It enriches the news story. It allows sort of citizens and users to go two levels down to get more insight on a topic or something of interest. And you're absolutely right that at the end of the day, it is a very, very significant inhibitor to open and equitable access to information. Okay. So we spent a good chunk of our time here saying what's wrong with this, Bill. And I know you did mention that there were a couple of things that, that you thought were good or at least a good idea. You know, what would be a better way to sort of tackle this problem or maybe to meet the goals of what it's trying to do, sustain you know, news online? the share of information online. There's some other policy solutions that we actually advocate passionately for. First, just to kind of set the scene for some of these US-based bills, it might be helpful to point out that relative to other democracies, the United States actually really underfunds its free press in terms of sort of investment per citizen. So there are other governments that offer direct subsidies based on the number of journalists employed, like in Canada and Denmark. Some of them offer delivery or distribution subsidies, like Norway and Sweden and France and the United States after its founding in the form of postal subsidies. And then some have kind of reduced taxes, like a reduced value added tax in the United Kingdom. But there's also models that we feel good about, feel great about here in the United States. One is another bill called the Local Journalism Sustainability Act. I was going to ask about that. Go on. A bill that we support that empowers citizens and small businesses and news organizations themselves through a system of tax credits. So citizens get a, a tax credit for subscribing to local news that meets their needs. Small businesses get a tax credit for advertising in local news in their community. And news outlets themselves get a payroll tax credit for hiring or retaining journalists. And this has been very popular. It's got bipartisan support in the House. It has strong sponsorship in the Senate. One of its provisions, the payroll tax credit, has almost made its way into several different pieces of legislation going all the way back to the COVID uh, relief plan. And we're still hopeful that it can get across the finish line. There's another bill called the Future of Local News Act. It's a bipartisan bill in the House that would examine and report on the role of and the importance of local news gathering in sustaining democracy, a way maybe for representatives and senators from both parties to really understand what we lose when local news is lost in a community. And then there's the Saving Local News Act, also in the House, which would amend the Internal Revenue Code of 1986 to make it a little easier for news organizations to become nonprofits. Again, one of the business models that's pointed to as having great promise for meeting the needs of communities. There's also been, though, several proposals for another way to kind of transfer platform revenue to news publishing revenue. And that is in the form of a tax, sort of taxing the platforms to create independent funds that could be allocated to or earned by news organizations. One of them actually is a proposal that Public Knowledge, the nonprofit I work for, has developed. It's called a super fund for the internet. 
and it would impose a federal user fee on the dominant platforms based on their number of monthly users on the theory that the greater the user base, the greater potential for harmful disinformation, and it would require that the platforms have fact-checking as part of their content moderation approach. And then news organizations, most of which have very strong, very robust fact-checking capabilities, could start or scale up that capability to platforms as a new revenue stream. And we feel the proposal has potential to accomplish two goals, improve our information environment and create new revenue for news organizations in a way that really suits their distinct capabilities. So th those are some of the alternative models. And those are just ones that are currently, you know, being talked about and being discussed that could help solve the crisis in local news. I know of, and we've covered a couple of those, and I think they're good approaches. And I think a, a more beneficial way. I, you know, a few years back, I remember when they when they started talking about this, maybe we should have the government set something up that would, you know, people would pay a tax or a user fee or whatever to support local news. And my thought was, well, you know, I know how people feel about new taxes and, and how difficult that would be to enact. But I know that a lot of people are frustrated with the political public discourse that we have right now. And despite the fact that many people don't trust the, the news, are unhappy with the news that they're getting, the further we get into is I think that people are beginning to change in their, their understanding of the value of good local reporting. Not to, sh shed, not to say that I'm a good local reporter, but I can tell you that in the last few years, people have come up to thank me, not necessarily because of the work I'm doing, but because the, there's nobody else covering these local stories. You know, at first I didn't know how to sort of respond to it, but it continues to happen. So I think there's this growing understanding that local news and news is important to support. Try to sort of bring this home. Where's the JCPA in Congress? I know these things can take time. You know, is it imminently going to be voted on? Is it sort of, has it passed one house? Is it in another? What's going on with it? The most recent occurrence on the JCPA was that it went through a markup of the Judiciary Committee of the Senate. So the next step in the Senate would be to bring it to the floor for a vote. In the House, there's been some discussion on it. It hasn't yet gone to a committee a vote, nor does it have to based on that process. And then it would also have to go to the floor. When it was discussed in the Judiciary Committee of the Senate, there were, I think it was seven or eight amendments tacked onto it. So really showing that this bill needed and still needs some substantial work. And even several of the senators who voted for it in committee strongly warned its sponsors that they would not necessarily do so on the floor, that they felt it needed more time and attention to address the idea that it doesn't require that funds be used for journalism. It has a significant potential impact on platform content moderation, which would allow a lot of harmful disinformation and hate speech to continue and so on and so on. So it is far from a sure thing. We believe, suspect that it won't come up for additional activity anytime soon. I think there's a lot of focus on the election right now. But when Congress is back in session, 
we certainly expect to see continued discussion about it. But even those who voted for it in committee had strong cautions about some of the contradictions in the bill, some confusion about its actual impact, particularly on content, and some concerns about whether it really will gain in journalists and journalism versus funding more acquisitions, funding you know dividends and executive bonuses. All of those are fair play based on the JCPA today. Even though nothing is imminently happening, I think you know journalists should definitely pay attention to this and they can certainly find out more about it on the public knowledge website. We'll include a link with this story. Lisa, thank you for filling us all in on this and explaining public knowledge's position and the ins and outs of this bill. You're welcome. And thank you, Michael, for shining a light on this incredibly important topic. We very much appreciate it. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening. A financial plan isn't just about money. It's about what matters most to you, like protecting your family, supporting your community, and building a legacy for future generations. At Northwestern Mutual, we start with a conversation about the life you want to live now and years from now. Whether you're paying down debt, saving for college, or planning for retirement, we have an eye on your bigger picture. Get access to our financial expertise at harlem.nm.com. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, headquartered in Milwaukee, Wisconsin.